I don't really know what their purpose is. There's just this massive web of organizations and companies and trusts. People seem to appear all sorts of places as merchant venturers. You know, well, it's a long time since we've had merchant venturers, and I think they should have gone away a long time ago. The reason that people who wanted a mayoral system and sort of one man in charge who could speak for everybody and one man that could make decisions and one man that could make things go more quickly because things they felt weren't happening quick enough, it's, it's designed to ride roughshod over democracy. That's inbuilt in it and that's what it invariably does. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk to Labour Bristol South MP, Karen Smith. Labour, is it tearing itself apart? Keir Starmer, is he the leader that can take Labour to win a general election? And in Bristol, the mayoral system and the role that the merchant venturers play in the city. When you are an MP, how often do you spend in Westminster and how often do you spend in Bristol? Because I've still got, he's now 16, but when I started, my youngest was 10 and my oldest was 15. So I very much wanted to be in Bristol as much as possible. So I would go up to London on a Monday morning after making sure people got out to school with the right shoes on, etc. And Mm. then I would generally get back for Thursday evening. And how is that for you with having family, being away from them throughout the week? Um, Well, I don't know if they're listening, but sometimes that's okay. I said to some... (laughs) Sometimes um, my friends have said, oh, gosh, Karen, it must be really difficult being away the whole time. I said, hmm, teenagers mm. sometimes, you know what? Sometimes it's nice to be away. <laughs> and that means ah, my, you've got teenage my children. poor okay. husband. Yeah. Um, uh, to be serious, though, no, it is hard at times. I do miss them, but I yeah. try and make it work. And actually, you can be quite flexible. I've managed to be around for birthdays and special occasions and work with the whips in Parliament to make those things happen. But you do need someone very good back at base because the thing is, I know your children are a bit younger, Neil. But yeah, I mean, I, I I literally walk around the block several times to avoid coming home sometimes, <laughs> let, let alone stay in London. But you are a human being, aren't you? You're a human being. That is true. With family. I mean, people do forget that about politicians sometimes, that you have another life. Yeah, well, it's also unusual for women at the age of 50 with teenage children to become members of parliament people either go into it younger or straight from their work that was 2015 wasn't it that's right so what was what made you do it then I mean I'd always been an activist I joined the Labour Party in 1985 um, and I was an organizer quite well known in the city for being an election organizer and agent and I had stood once uh unsuccessfully for seat in Avonmouth actually when my children were young but I hadn't then sought political office myself I was usually helping other people and I'd got quite back into the swing of my career in the health service which I loved mm. after having the children Dawn announced that she was standing down and I've always supported women particularly to to step up and to go for the seat I was very keen as were many other people in Bristol and particularly in South Bristol that it was someone local. Do you say so you live in Bristol South, yeah? No, I don't live in Bristol South, but I live in I've lived in Bristol for thirty years. Um right. and it was really then thinking, well, do I want to, you know, uproot our lives a family? Is this the right time? But when women 
are asked to stand for office or think about it, the first thing that says is, oh, it's not the right time. And I've persuaded so many other people about the fact it's not the right time. Um, I thought, absolutely, that is something I really want to do. It's a seat that represents very much my own background and how I grew up. It's a great honour to represent a seat that has been Labour since 1935. Where did you grow up, Karen? So I grew up in a place called Hillingdon, which is uh, just near Heathrow Airport, uh, becoming now famous because actually the Prime Minister, is that's his constituency. Okay. So West London, yeah? Yeah. And quite a working class background. Do you, I feel you talk about that. Yeah, which is really important to me. My parents are both Irish. They came over in the 1950s from Ireland with lots of other people to work. My father was a bus driver and a lorry driver, um, in and out of various sorts of work of that that type. My mum was a barmaid and waitress, and it, it, you know, it, 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 there were there were lots of difficulties around that. Um, we did have problems around my father, particularly uh, uh, through alcohol and gambling, and that led to lots of insecurities. Why things like housing, um, the impact of things like domestic abuse is really important to me. Very personal. The, the, the recognition that different people got dealt different sets of cards sure. and you needed people and services there to help and guide you through life. And was that kind of why you were sort of propelled into the Labour Party? Seeing yes. that as a vehicle for kind of people that don't have opportunities? It was, but because I'm now 57, so this is in the early 80s, I wasn't propelled into the Labour Party because I didn't think the Labour Party was uh, the right place or spoke to people like me because I was very keen to do well and I was very keen to uh, go to a good school and to go to university because I decided I don't really know how I knew that that was a good way especially for girls to become financially independent and be able to control your own life and I don't think the Labour Party was particularly talking to working class girls like me at that particular lacking time. Aspira- really- lacking aspiration and kind totally. of yeah. Well, one of my one of my party pieces at 2015, when I used to speak to people about becoming the MP, is I didn't join the Labour Party in the 1980s because it was obsessed about arguing about Europe and trident nuclear weapons. And mm. um, if you can cast your mind back to 2015, <laughs> that's all we were talking about. It is an interesting debate, though, isn't it? Because I guess what your uh, this sort of word neoliberal is kind of banded around to people that do believe in you know aspiration and social mobility and and it is a real kind of divide a bit within the Labour Party isn't it that kind of that it, it, and I think it seems to have re-emerged its head a little bit obviously with the sort of the, the Corbyn coming in um, and there's often this dare I say a kind of there's often a slightly sort of paternal patronising attitude to working class people that they aren't entrepreneurial and aspirational the Labour Party is forged of many different components. It's it's a family, and at different times, different parts of that family are dominant, and different thoughts come to the fore. I think that, that, that your point about being patronising is is a well made one. Is there an argument to say, playing devil's advocate, that perhaps what started off with well-meaning intentions, uh, a, a kind of ability to connect with the wider electorate, you know, to win elections again, to be taken seriously uh, across the country. Would you would you be of the opinion or do you accept the argument that perhaps in the latter days and going into brain where maybe set the seed really for leaving behind some of their core base, which has kind of taken us to where we are today? 
For the Labour Party, we've spent 75% of our history in opposition. We are rarely in government. And that is a shocking fact for a party that seeks to be in government. So the focus on being in government and then remaining in government and fulfilling our manifesto commitments, um, I think did take the eye off the ball in terms of the connectivity both within the Labour Party itself and the importance of the Labour Party being rooted in communities. And that's where we started to, to lose things of which we are now trying to get back. Mm. Historically, the Labour Party has been, you know, you know, people who have become local councillors and become members of parliament and people who are chairs of governors on local schools, mm. who run the local community events and community centres. Those people have been really important uh, routes into communities. I think we, and I know I could see it in, in Bristol, we, we lost as a lot of those people who were running community organisations, chairs of governors, etc., became councillors, became running services, running government, being in power. It takes a lot of people and, and, and energy. And we didn't really bring on people behind that to fulfil those places and be rooted in those communities and therefore know how those communities were feeling and what was happening in those communities. And I think that is something about the loss of connection. Hmm. It was very easy, I think, to blame this at the door of, of Corbyn, you know, as much as there were, you know, there were obvious issues with his leadership, but it was very easy and a convenient hook to blame that on him. But this is something that's been in the post for for decades, you know, I work in community development or, or used to, and part of my role was was de- deprivation areas across the UK for street games and conversations about feeling detached and disconnected from the Labour Party were happening, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. You're right that the loss of votes certainly pre- precedes Jeremy becoming leader in 2015. I, I'm not someone who would ever argue that that all of that is at the, the, the door of Jeremy. I think... Um, I think Jeremy's election was part of a feeling of wanting to resolve some of that. I just think it was the wrong solution. You supported Owen Smith, didn't you, in the 2016 leadership election? Yes. From my point of view, I think a lot of lot of it is to do with the fact that uh, it is true that through the democratic process, people don't have control over many of the things that affect their everyday life. And I think you have to tie into that, the fallout from the financial crash, the Brexit vote, um, and the way that in which so many of our services are not democratically accountable, either locally or nationally, and the Labour Party had a, had a role in some of that as well, I, I accept mm. that, uh, means that people think, well, what, what's the point uh, sometimes? Um, you were someone who, who voted Remain? Yes. Was your, what was your role, remind me, your role with, with Keir Starmer before? I was what's called his parliamentary private secretary, which is um, the sort of link between the front bench and back benches in, yeah. in Parliament and part of the Brexit team. So you've had a, you know, a close relationship with, with um, Sir Keir Starmer, who obviously is now the, the leader of the party, who was instrumental in wanting Labour to direction of going into the election in terms of second referendum or people's vote or, or however you want to define it. You just said about democracy and democratic. I mean, isn't that the biggest single vote that people have had in this country? And more people turned out in working class communities than that, that they have for any general election for, for practically 50, 60 years. And you were part of a process to try and effectively overturn that. 
So I don't think that's what happened over the period of time after the uh, referendum. And that's not where Keir was taking us from the start of that process. I think when what happened was, and I think we do forget this, is that when we the, the, the government gradually under Theresa May suddenly went from negotiating the out vote, which we all accepted, um, to drawing red lines on everything and effectively saying that she would start going towards a no deal. So the terms of the negotiation and the debate within the Conservative Party changed over that period of time. And I think anybody looking at what happened even before or just after the referendum thinking that we would end up with a Boris Johnson and a threat of a no deal was completely aghast that that's that's how far they would go with it. And no one on the referendum campaign, I think, thought that they would actually do that. So the you know the process changed through time um, over that over that period. When Theresa May went to that election in the country, and, and she said, you know, I need this majority to implement my Brexit, the country very clearly said, whoa, no, we want out, but we don't want out at any cost. That's not what we voted for. And then pulled back a majority. We don't know that though, Karen, do we? We all people just voted leave or stay. I think people expected to leave, but on a negotiated sense that, um, you know, even even the strongest. Yeah, but how do we know that? Is my question is. Even the strongest. Nobody knows that, do they? Well, because of what people were promised by the major the Leave campaign, who never said that there would be. They talked very little about a customs union. They talked very little about breaking those arrangements. Um, people even intimated at times you could be part of the single market. They certainly never said that they would put a border in Ireland or across the Irish Sea. You would have seen Bristol South voted marginally, very marginally in favour of Remain. You know, my email box was constantly and Twitter and so on was constantly telling me what an outrage I was um, Mm. because um, my constituency was overwhelmingly Remain and it wasn't. And I spent those years saying to people, that's not how Bristol South voted. Bristol South was very divided and I absolutely know. And also, because they told us, oh, no, I'm voting back for you again. I didn't vote for you last time because, you know, you're in favour of the European Union and I want out. But now it's all done. I'll come back to you. So, I, you know, I, I, I kind of upset everybody because I wasn't with the second referendum people and the big, strong Remain lobby and I wasn't marching for Remain um, and I wasn't a leaver. So, <laughs> yeah. And do you see the leader? I mean, I, I did made a documentary in, in, in South Bristol and... There was clearly, you know, and you can debate to the case coming why that is and the messaging in the media and whether the, the argument the Labour Party kind of went against kind of Corbyn and why that was. But clearly from talking to people in the communities of Knoll West, Hartcliffe, even around Plyke Place of Bebbinster, that, uh, that they didn't like they didn't like Jeremy. And that seemed to be swaying them even not to vote or, or to move towards the Tories or, or Brexit party. Do you think now with a change of leader, do you think someone like Keir Starmer will have a greater appeal to working class communities in the country th- than Corbyn? I think he will. I think we're not there yet. Um, and I think people don't really know or haven't seen that that of Keir yet. Um, partly the pandemic has not helped that, obviously, but I think they will. Um, mm-hmm. But I, and I think people do want to see more of, um, you know, what he's like and people are waiting to see because I think 
you know, the, the problem with our internal arguments being public and so on, and some of them, sometimes that's good because we're a political party. People should know what we're like and what we're about. But people think, well, if you're busy talking to yourselves and arguing amongst yourselves, you're not really that bothered about me. I mean, it comes sure. back to my point earlier about my own experience as a youngster saying, well, if you want to spend your whole time talking about nuclear disarmament and Europe and you're not yeah. talking about how I can go to university and how we can make sure we've got a roof over our heads, then what are you, you know, what are you about People's yeah. needs are very immediate, and and there has been is- an attempt, though, hasn't there? There's clearly been a marketing attempt, you know, with the, uh, you know, maybe slightly clumsily in places to, uh, to to create some daylight from the previous regime, uh, you know, right through to obviously, I think he's still currently suspended, isn't he? And and trying to kind of change the messaging a bit. That you know, I know that he, Star, Starmer was sort of mocked slightly, wasn't he, for the sort of beer and chips thing in in Hartlepool. Um, but there isn't, you know, rightly or wrongly, and however clumsy that is, there is clearly an, an attempt to re-collaborate and reconnect Labour's message to those communities. Because it has to, because otherwise... Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not a marketing you know, attempt, it's what we're about. I mean, yeah. you know, as I, as I said earlier, 75% of our time is, is in opposition. Keir is absolutely cut from the cloth that said the purpose of the Labour Party is to be in government, is to be in government and to change society for the better in line with our values. Yeah. That's the whole point of the Labour Party. You know, we're not a fan club. We're not, you know, yeah. we're not a lobby group. Group. We're not a debating society. We seek to be in government. Um, and the person that was most successful at that was Tony Blair. It's the only time we've won a second election. Now, I'm old enough and I can still remember what it was like on the 1st of May 1997 because, um, you know, I was in my early 30s and I hadn't remembered really a, a Labour government. So, you know, that desire to, to win is absolutely what Keir is 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 focused on the the chips you know i've done marketing and comms the chips and the and the, the beer thing did very much look like that i think and you there's getting a balance isn't there between you know all authenticity but getting that message out but i think i think the interesting thing with, with this is there's also a danger i guess that you kind of alienate or you lose some of those young excited I guess more radical voters of the left metropolitan city kind of voters if you lean too far that way because you don't want to lose them as well because then you won't get elected (laughs) do you know what I mean it's just really tricky isn't it everyone likes chips and beer Um, (laughs) but uh, I I do take your point about the authenticity Um, although you know Keir does eat chips and I have been for a beer with him and he likes football doesn't he he does do that oh my god yeah Yeah. he does like football and Arsenal and all that stuff you know so just moving swiftly on the point I think the point you're trying to make is is the is is that is that old point of you know what is Labour's coalition Um, and um, there was look undoubtedly um, you know, Jeremy appealed to people who like to hear a blunt, loud socket to the message. Um, and um, that, you know, it made people feel, yeah, I like that. That's punchy. It's exciting. It's a bit flashy. You know, I mean, look, people have voted for Boris Johnson. I just want to jump in there if I can and tell you about a membership drive this month to try and get 3,000 members. So we're hoping to get 400 new members to join us. And what I want to kind of say really is that this show, Bristol Unpacked, which started at the beginning of lockdown, is getting thousands and thousands of people locally listening every single episode. And thank you for that. But also for it to continue, we kind of need some financial sustainability in the organisation. And it's membership owned, as you know, and all of us to do that, we do need more members. So I implore you, if you enjoy the show, 
if you also read the paper and you like the online articles that the cable do and the various documentaries then please do join a couple of quid every month if you really want an independent media arguably what i would say a media that bristol needs then it needs to be financed so please chip in and please help out back to the chat If you go back ten years, I wonder if would your, is, is the profile of MPs less prominent in the city now that we have a mayor? Do you think? Because I think if you look at the press coverage and the media coverage, you don't. I got to, to be honest, I don't hear an awful lot from the four MPs as much as I, anywhere near that I would from the mayor. And now you've got obviously got Dan Norris as Metro Mayor. Um, is it is, are your roles less prominent now? There's a mayor in, in Bristol. I think that's a really interesting question about where, I mean, I guess it's what you're looking at, isn't it? Um, that what is the news you're looking at? What are the issues you're looking at? Because so many issues in Bristol locally are council issues. Yeah. So undoubtedly, whoever is leading the council is the person that you're going to see and, and hear from. Are you in favour of the mayoral system, Karen? No, no, I've never been. No, I, I, I was very much against it when it started and I am still against it. For me, I mean, the reason, you know, that people who wanted a mayoral system and sort of one man in charge who could speak for everybody and one man that could make decisions and one man that could make things go more quickly because things they felt weren't happening quick enough. It's, it's designed to ride roughshod over democracy. That's inbuilt in it. And that's what it invariably does. Uh, you know, regardless of the individual. Isn't it getting stuff done that, that didn't used to get done, though? You know, all this sort Like of, what? You know, this sort of oil tanker of decision-making and, See, and I just process. don't accept no? this premise. This I'm, is just the premise quite, I'm quoting been, them. We're getting stuff done. The, the premise is that nothing happened in Bristol and Bristol was stuck. Now, I, I have only been living here for 30 years, um, <laughs> so I accept that I, you know, might not know everything. But in my 30 years here... This is a city that has been transformed. Yeah. Uh, lots of problems remain the same. You know, we'd like to sort out our transport system. I think that's the major one across the city. But people keep coming, wanting to live here. We're frequently one of the best and the you know the most interesting and the youngest and the most exciting and the greenest, etc. city uh, in the country. And well, if that's true, why is it also true that everything was stuck and we couldn't get on with things? So I don't buy okay. this premise that we were sold yeah. uh, in the noughties in order to have a mayor that things weren't happening. And Can we go back a bit then? Can we go back? Am I right in thinking... With the exception of one or two, a lot of the current councillors in Bristol, the mayoral team and all of the MPs, you've been in politics in Bristol longer than all of them? Oh. Um, Most of them? Possibly. Around, yeah. Yes. Okay, I mean, so I... you were around when decisions were being made. I just want to ask you what you think, and I don't know how much you've looked at the the One City Plan, which, which is obviously part of the mayoral kind of office in this 2050 vision, which is basically around looking at a, a series of kind of measures and plans in place for Bristol, which is led by the mayoral team. Essentially, you have sort of city leaders from across all the different industries and third sector and charities working together collaboratively across different kind of issues. Um, the 2050 vision stuff, if you've been around in politics 30 years, did you come across that before? Yes, I mean that's the original document. I can't remember what what incarnation of was it the Bristol Initiative. Bristol Initiative, yeah. And a lot of the language and the terminology, the kind of vision behind it, is very similar to a report. I think it was around twenty ten called High in Hope, 
which was written by a fellow called John Savage, uh, mm-hmm. who is the chair of Bristol Chamber and Initiative. He's, he's currently chair of the Western Harbour Group. Uh, he stood as an independent, actually, for, for Metro Mayor a few years ago. Uh, it's all talking about trying to build a bridge between the business community and the council because they couldn't work together and, and now they kind of are. I mean, my view about how you bring that together and my memory of that document, which incidentally has a piece on it about rebalancing the city, recognising that the you know, the, the, the road infrastructure and the industry being in the north of the city and the deindustrialization, the loss of, of wheels and so on from South Bristol has meant that the industry and the work is in the north and then the house building goes to the north and that we need to make sure that everything that is done rebalances the city. So I'd like to remind everyone about that part of that document. Is the insinuation that there was a push by the business community to have a mayoral system in Bristol? I, I don't think it's an insinuation. I think most of the, the people involved in that did feel that the mayoral system, a mayor, would be a good thing. For business, yeah? For getting things done. Okay. Yes. And why, why would that work? Because I think people outside that politics did, did feel that the fact that people couldn't always agree and things then got stalled mm. is, is a bad thing. Now, I can say, if I can, if I can explain that a bit... Um, I think the only way to resolve some of those things is is to be open with the population about why you need and want something and you have to bring populations with you. Yeah. One of the reasons lots of things stalled in the greater Bristol area, if we want to call it that, is that we had different makeup of different political parts of the area. Now, at the end of the day, that's what local people voted for. And yeah. for democracy to work, local representatives have to articulate the needs of local people, have to persuade people to change, have to bring them with you. Democracy is messy. It takes a long time. You have to be in committees to argue your point. You need to flesh out early on in processes the the problems, the the objection to things in order to make progress and bring people with you. I don't accept that, that notion that just by having one man in charge of something then gets it done. Because the objections will come somewhere and it's much better to get through those early in the process and bring people with you. Is it arguably easier to get things if you were a developer or you were a business under the mail system than the previous? I think there's a perception that 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 can happen and that's not healthy for democracy, it's a perception. But I don't think there's any evidence of it. Right, okay. Because what what has happened differently from the mayoral system than would have happened or did happen yeah. under previous systems. But obviously you're in the same you're in the same political party as the mayor. Do the other MPs pro or anti mayoral system, do you know? Um no, I think I think you have to ask them their their individual positions um on it. I think I'm I'm I think I'm the only person that was here actively not wanting it in the first place. Okay. Uh, I just want to read out this is a quote from the Bristol Chamber of Commerce in in 1989 so we're going back quite a bit now this 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 whole kind of all these documents are are all online you can compare it to the to the current bristol one city program where there are very similar language very similar goals and visions there's a direct quote saying what they want to do the aim is to create a bridge between the business community of bristol and its very left-wing council where there have been a complete absence of dialogue or cooperation for many years the city was deteriorating the council was characterised by business as the loony left and business epitomised by the Society of Merchant Ventures 
uh, secure in their leafy suburb of Clifton, as seen as, uh, I'm, I'm quoting it, raping and pillaging. The magnitude of the task is to create dialogue, to understand and deliver the potential future of the city. That is a direct quote from John Savage, and that is from the Bristol Initiative in 1989. We fast forward now to 2021. Isn't that exactly what's happened? But isn't that a good thing that business and city and council work together for the benefit of Bristol. That depiction, which was obviously John Savage's view at the time, which I'm sure was not shared by other people, but will have been shared by some. But but even part of that, um, the the fact that the two were not talking, were not working together, Mm. were at odds. I mean, the end of the 1980s was a very divisive time. So Bristol was not unique in that situation. And this is really why I say, uh, you know, things happened in my 30-year period because, you know, we saw the development of Cabot Circus, the changes to the docks yeah. and, and those those public-private partnerships. And some of my colleagues in the Labour Party might argue that, you know, but it is extreme views that you don't work with business. That's absolutely not where the Labour Party has generally been. I think the more interesting point or the more, more interesting question is looking at were the seeds of this plan sown many years ago? And obviously the Bristol Initiative... Bristol Chamber of Commerce, Business West, who have a very close relationship with the One City Office now. He mentions the merchant ventures within this quote. Obviously, none of them are elected representatives. And if this was a plan and a vision that was concocted, you know, 20 odd years ago, that's now been taken on by political voted mayor and One City Office team, who's making decisions about Bristol? But the vision can be the right one. And I think what you're alluding to is how are decisions made and how, you know, who's got influence. And one of the reasons I don't support the mayoral system, and just so that you and any anybody who might be listening is very clear, as I've said to both George Ferguson and Marvin Rees, I think both George Ferguson and Marvin Rees are men of, of, of integrity who are very passionate about Bristol and want to do the best for Bristol. I think the system does not help them because by being a system that doesn't have to go through all of the committees, all of the transparency that empower local councillors to speak on behalf of their local communities, that breeds suspicion about how and where decisions are made. And we frankly don't know how and where decisions are made. It depends on your perspective though, Karen, doesn't it? Because if you want to get something through quick and you've got a close relationship with business... The mayoral system's but ideal, what, but 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 I challenge you back to say what has got through quick that was not what 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 has happened. Well, I mean, I've just seen something today. Was it the, the tallest building in Bristol? We've got you know the, an increase in kind of housing stock. We've got an increase in decision. You know this whole the climate emergency. We've we've got people talking to each other in in business and and politics. It's never happened before. You know, so I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm just saying this is what's put out there. So if we take, for example, the joint public partnerships around. Um, let's look at the, re- the, 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 set, the city centre, yeah. um, and that, that all happened before the mayoral system. Yeah. So I think. So you think um, it's a myth then? You don't think there is? You think it's a it's a sleight of hand? There isn't anything that's actually no. happening more. I think clearly, in the document you referred to, the separation of and the feeling of business and so on, and from the council and that antipathy or, or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. in the late nineteen eighties. The relationship that's a changing better, time yeah. and the relationship yeah. was improving and that's led obviously by people like John Savage. I think that's a 
good thing. Yeah. It led to in, in, improvements and Bristol, I think the situation we're in now with decision-making um, across the city and understanding you know, who is making decisions when and influence. Because behind your questioning is a suspicion uh, about access and how decisions are made. And that's not healthy for democracy. Um, I want to talk to you a bit. I've recently made a documentary, not exclusively focusing on them, but looking into them. And I recently interviewed on this show the new master of the Merchant Venturers, Gillian Cam. I think you've, in, in the same regard that you're kind of slightly opposed to the mayoral system on democratic grounds you've expressed hesitancy around the role of the merchant ventures in bristol before what what do you object to i did listen to your podcast there's been a bit of rebranding or coming out of the shadows Mm. but i just question why does a 500 year organization club essentially based on slavery still exist and their members appear in all sorts of places across the city. I think that's not transparent and I think that's not good for the health of democracy of the city. There's quite a lot of the members of the Merchant Ventures that were involved in what we just spoke about earlier, actually, the Bristol Initiative. If you look at the membership list, the Bristol Initiative, Business West, a lot are also members of the Merchant Ventures. The response that Gillian gave on that was that, well, you know, we invite people that are captains of industry and leaders of their particular sectors and fields. So, of course, there's going to be people that are merchant vendors, almost as if it was the the conspiracy theorists in Bristol were getting the cart before the horse. My question then back to her was, well, at what point do you know when someone is representing the merchant venturers then? Yes. If there is no clear line. I, I think it's very problematic. And I know you didn't get an invitation. I don't know that you got asked to call Caroline, didn't you? I don't know if you called Caroline. I haven't had Caroline the invitation and, uh, as we speak yet, no. <laughs> you've not had the hand on the shoulder. No. I mean, it, it is from the dark ages, isn't it? I mean, it's just it's just not how... And I, I mean, this sort of, you know, adding adding women and they have their, their first, and uh, Marty Burgess, their first black woman representative on there as well. Um, it, it's like we're in 2021 and they're still kind of thinking, oh, yes, the 1950s have arrived. We ought to really think about some of this stuff. I think it is rebranding. I don't really know what their purpose is. Um, you know, in your in your interview, which I thought was interesting, very much putting forward that it's an organisation involved in education. Yeah, and education. Care. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, you know, they are a multi academy trust. They've, you know, now got eight schools that they run, and they obviously run the the, the care homes. But beyond that, there's just this massive web of organisations and companies and trusts and as you say, people seem to appear all sorts of places as merchant mm. venturers. You know, well, it's a long time since we've had merchant venturers, and I think they should have gone away a long time ago. Do you think they should ago. disband? And we, we see, well, we see, we see the effect, don't we, in you know, opening a new school and still maintaining the names of Colston's and the, the Dolphin School and refusing to change the name on the statue is very recent. Yeah. Well, the argument is they've been sort of pushed. They've been kind of forced into a corner to to they've been reactive I guess rather than proactive in, in doing that arguably I suppose to play devil's advocate though you know they they have money they have money they've inherited from the trusts they're trying to make amends put back into you know society what's the difference between the philanthropy that they do and any other 
organisation. Because any other organisation doesn't seem to have all its members on key boards and bodies yeah. of the city. I've, I've asked the question, actually, and I've yet to get a response, which is how many. Because what is pushed back is this sort of Dan brain. It's, it's like a kind of tentacles are everywhere and it's all a bit. But actually, if you do look at most boards, they do. There are a number of key uh, merchant ventures sat on boards, including in the one city office. Do you think the merchant ventures are happy with the Merrill model? I don't know. And I don't think I, 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 it's, a, it's a good question. Um, but but I, I go back to what, what have they got from it? I mean, I think what, you know, what are they access, about? And, access. And you were you told know, access and, and, and what does it deliver? Maybe that they feel that's it's enough. It's a long game, isn't it, Karen? It's, it's a long game, that kind of stuff, isn't it? Well, it's it? been since 1522, so it's quite <laughs> okay. a long game, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not suggesting that current members have been around that long. But I think it's, you know, most, most cities, these organisations have disappeared. Now, of course, we have a lot of philanthropic organisations in the city and a lot yeah. of them do great work in South Bristol. But you know they have clear governance and their their accounts and who they are are very visible and transparent and they're registered as charities and we don't have these people coming to be on city board. So the question is, why join? You know, what 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 what, what do people get out of being on this body and this complete web of organisations that we don't understand? Power. I mean, the schools trust. You know, that's not charity. You know, they get nearly thirty million pound a year from the taxpayer to run these schools. That's a business. Yeah. You know, so take that out and the care homes. I mean, is that what they're going to become? Just dump the rest. But the rebranding, I don't think it's enough. And we've seen, we've seen how how unwilling they've been to move forward yeah. out of any century. I think it's time to go. Really, I mean, you know, of course, they always had a member of parliament as a merchant venturer. William Watergrave. Okay, sorry, I know the fellow that was his, that worked for his office. Actually, it was, a, it was his um, they. I mean, historically, very famously, over time, they chose the members of Parliament. That's how they had power. So I think they've been very good at knowing where power is at different times. Yeah. Um, I don't think myself or any other Labour MPs, or indeed Valerie Davy, who replaced William Watergrave in 1997, has ever been asked to be a merchant venturer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. I d- I'm obviously not at the top of my career. He's not here to answer, and we've mentioned his name three or four times. I do need to say, and I do want to get him on the show, actually, but John Savage was a merchant venturer. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to – I'll put an invitation out to him. Uh, individuals, to, to be very clear, who are active in South Bristol, who, are, who, who do really good work and are good people – um, I don't impugn them at all. Sure. Look, you know, they, they, they run eight schools. Yeah. Four of them require improvement. Yeah. Can you... They do get money from the government to run those schools on behalf of local communities. That's not a charitable... So it's business. not as an admirable, admirable and a selfless act as, well, as potentially it, how it's presented then? It's not philanthropy. Yeah. It's fine because other, you know, the church, yeah. the Catholic Church and the, and the Church of England run academy trusts as well. But that, that that's what that work is. Now, if that's the route they're going down, as, yeah. as your interview seems to suggest, then what what's all the rest is yeah. my question. What, what's everything else about? Yeah, and on all the rest then, do you think, you've just said that they're trying to, to, to play a bit of a sort of PR game. Do you think they are underplaying their influence in the city because it's not a good look, particularly in quite a radical city like Bristol, which is, you know, increasingly younger students coming in. It's quite left. It's, are they are they underplaying their influence or, as they would say, is it just a bit of a sort of Boo Radley, you know, a Wizard of Oz thing that it's always over-egged and exaggerated, you know, the merchant venturers and all this kind of stuff? 
Well, it's been a bad couple of years, hasn't it? You know, the statue coming down is quite iconic. I mean, there's obviously been lots of rumblings and discussions and debates. I think the even the willingness to do an interview with you, which is a good thing, mm. was revelatory for lots of things that it didn't say, as well as what it did say. It took a lot of persuading. I'm sure, it took a lot of a lot of conversations and persuading. Because I that was one of my kind of first questions is, well, why don't you do any kind of media interviews? Why don't you put yourself forward? And, and, exactly. and it was because oh, we don't like because it's slightly uncouth to sort of you know this uh, the culture of trying to. Um, you know, we don't talk about all the good things that we do because it just is a bit, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. a bit. Kind well, of... lots of lots of people, lots of people don't do that, and lots of people work really hard in the city and give a lot of money if they've got money and give an awful lot of time in the city, and that is a good thing. And lots of people don't want to be front and center of a piece, but this is a very different organisation isn't it? And it's got very different roots. And it has managed to rebrand itself and reinvent itself over the centuries. In a modern society like ours, I see no role for for that. Um, I don't I ask the question, why join it? Yeah. Okay, tough question for you then, as a Labour Party member. I've had lots of tough questions. Yeah, all in right. This last well, okay, time. well, this is tougher. Um, <laughs> okay. Do the council enable the merchant ventures have they enabled the merchant ventures too much in the city and not challenged them particularly now we have a uh, four labor mps or what was a labor majority a labor mayor uh, you know a, a party that was founded on the tenants of the the working man you know in 1900 challenging unregulated power the boss class colluding with a 500 year old philanthropic organisation that's connected to the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, that's, wow, that's a, a lot of a lot of adjectives in there, isn't it? I think so. Before we, um, I think I not mean, challenging enough. I, I mean, I think, I, no, seriously, I think it's yeah. a fair challenge of not challenging them enough. Um, I think that's a fair challenge. Okay, what could they do um, then? What could they do to challenge them? Well, and, and that again remains the question. I mean, I, I, I. I, I think the only way to um, – and I, I do think this is about the health of democracy in the city now, particularly. I think there is no reason to have – the only way – if if they are going to continue as they have, and I'm afraid I think all evidence suggests that they will, and when the spotlight comes off them, they will seek to continue as they have, then the only way is not to appoint anyone who's a merchant venturer to a public body. You know, we are all should we all be governed by the Nolan principles, particularly with regard to education and and health and and public work, and that's very clear that people need to follow those principles of transparency and accountability. And there is no place for unaccountable power in a modern city. Yeah, and surely there's no place for that within the Labour Party, is there? No. Final question: Will Labour ever win an election again? Yes. In my lifetime. And when? Yes. Yes, yeah. we will. Absolutely. Um, I think we're going, going to go through it. still a difficult period. I think we have to nail the incompetency, the lack of preparation, the impact of austerity, the decisions the Conservatives made after 2010 when they came to power, cutting the legs underneath sure starts and all this, the work that we'd put in place totally meant we were not ready for the pandemic we could have been in a much better position and we have to pin that absolutely on the Conservatives. But we also have to be very clear about, you know, our connection with our with voters 
of all types and our vision to deliver that as we talked about earlier lovely thanks karen most appreciated and uh, when you're back at westminster good to talk to you we're back on the monday the 6th oh back to school exciting back to school i'll look out for you on the telly all right then i'll try and uh, look smart and presentable <laughs> lovely take care cheers okay Bye-bye. take care Neil. Many thanks to Karen Smith for talking to us this week and we'll be back next week with another topic and a fantastic guest. In the meantime, please do subscribe to Bristol Unpacked on any podcasters and please leave a comment, leave a rating and don't forget to tell your friends about the fastest growing show in the city. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join 2,600 Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.